Hello and welcome to FAA Safety Briefing Live. This is the July-August edition of our broadcast. And of course, I'm joined by my co-host, Susan Parson. Hello, Susan. Hi, Paul. Uh, Susan, we haven't done this in a while, but can you just brief our viewers on your bio and what you do at the FAA? Um, yeah, I do a lot of things. I'm the editor-in-chief of this magazine. Um, I'm the uh, I, I like to say I'm the chief border colleague for the ACS, Airman Certification Standards Project, and there are a bunch of other things I've been working on. One of the cool things I've been doing since um, the, the coronavirus started and we we're in an all-virtual environment, um, a team of us are working on uh, presentations on effective staff work, and it's a rare opportunity to be a little more creative than I can when I'm writing talking points. Yeah, very good. I'm having fun. Good. And as you know, since I retired from the airlines last October, I have been uh, busy doing some Part 135 flying for a medical transport company and getting to see firsthand how different states and different cities are handling this in terms of regulations and masks and restaurants and things like that. You also have to work for a living. You have to do your own planning. And do everything. my own flight planning and weather briefings and everything. On the uh, other hand, I would say... Yeah, I, I tease him. I tell him he went from flying a bus to flying a Lamborghini. Indeed, the Learjet. Yes, oh, that's very yes. cool. I'm so jealous. So involved in uh, involved in medical transport flying, which is a lot of fun and very rewarding. Also doing some project work for Part 135 uh, training curriculum, and then helping some other organizations out in the industry. So, so it's You're been for a living. Yeah, it's been great. I've been I've enjoyed it. So, as always. We welcome you to this and invite you to participate in the wings part uh, and AMT credits. So, Susan, how can I how can I do that? And what's what's the new link? There? Uh, so, this is great. Um, there, first of all, the, there's the the page for the broadcast, and there are various links to the print copy to watching past programs. But if you click on that link at the bottom, the quick access, it'll take you right here. There are now 14 wings and AMT credit courses on safety.gov. And um, at the bottom of each of those little covers, so you can see which cover uh, for which issue it is, and at the bottom is the quick access to the courses. So it's a it's a very easy way to do it. And Paul, one of the things I'll, I'll tell you, I, th I think we've mentioned this in some of our, our public stuff, but we'll be talking about it more in the magazine later on. Safety.gov is, is changing platforms. It's going to a much modernized platform, and this is my favorite part, it's going to have a mobile component that will work on iPhones and iPads, and it, that mobile part will let you do wings right there when you're done with stuff. Uh, uh. Now, you, you probably don't want to do these on your iPhone, but when you're doing wings in the airplane, you can come back and, and do it right away. So Perfect. I'm really, really looking forward to seeing that come live, hopefully soon. Well, the group you work with in terms of the design of the magazine as well as the website, it's, it's always been impressive what, what the group turns out, and I'm sure the website will be as equally as... as yeah, it's, it's a great group of people, so I'm excited. Good. And as we typically do, uh, just the overall mission of sure. FAA Safety Briefing Magazine. Well, this, is, this is who we are. You see the three goals there, and Paul and I always say that encouraging continued training is probably the near and dear to our heart, but one thing I always tell people about the magazine is that we, we, we have a couple of things. One is we are not trying to duplicate anything that the aviation community is doing. We believe that we have a unique mission and a unique voice, which is just as you see there, the safety policy voice for non-commercial general aviation, which is what we do. 
And uh, all of us are quite passionate about that. All of us are involved in aviation in various ways. And um, the, the other thing that we do that I think is, is a little bit different, we, we have a focus, as you know, for each issue. Mm -hmm. And although obviously we have to repeat things as information changes and as things get updated, we, we hope for what one of my colleagues calls shelf stability. We, we hope that these can serve as a reference for some time to come and people can um, can use them going forward and say, oh yeah, you know, you dealt with that. And if, so, so that uh, last time it was everything aviation communications. Well, and certainly made it easy to access previous issues by having them on the, on the archive site and, and making the information readily available. So that's the aim. It's, it's perfect. So I thought our last broadcast was about communications and, and that was one of my favorites because of many of the issues that come up during, during discussions about communications with ATC, with crew members, all things communications. This might be my next most favorite issue, all about human factors. Well, but they all keep getting better, so this has to be a favorite <laughs> issue. They yeah. do. So yeah, we got a lot of stuff in this one. Um, I, I will say about this one, when we started planning this issue, um, we we were kind of, we, we always call this the Oshkosh issue because this is the big one we try to do for AirVenture every year. And we we everything was so much in doubt and we didn't know at that time whether AirVenture was gonna happen or not and we didn't know how to go about it. and. But, but when we talked about it, we thought, you know what, human factors is perfect for this particular time. Regardless of what direction it ends up taking, human factors gives us a lot of room to work with. And we found that to be true. So what are some of the feature articles we'll be going through? Well, starting with passing the stress test, and we talk about mm -hmm. bias. Um, I, I will, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll get into it. You can, we can surprise everybody. Okay. Um, Let's move on and just pick up with the first article, which is by the uh, director of Flight Standards, Rick Domingo. Boss, yeah. um, talks about the human factor. And the first thing I noticed when I read it was he started the article out by talking about drones. Absolutely. Why, why is that? Well, you know, I, I think that I, I have never particularly cared for the UAS term, frankly. Uh, I think remote pilot, which is what we call the certificate is a whole lot better because humans are very, very much involved in UAS uh, or drones and more than one human usually. The remote pilot often has a scanner and observer, all sorts of other people. So in a lot of ways, human factors um, are even more involved in quote unquote unmanned aircraft than in lots of other things. And because drones are, are kind of new, uh, it's it's a particularly bright field, so I thought that was a, a really good way to start. And then talking about the fact that you know, as it says here, designers and engineers have developed machines that are tolerant of mistakes, but we don't have too many fault tolerant humans. That's that's true. Um, that's we're, true. We we are very prone to um, to human factors things, which you see here. And um, it's, it's, it kind of applies to everybody who's involved in aviation in any way, shape, or form. So, Well, and the third bullet point sums it up really well, the study mm -hmm. of how humans behave physically and psychologically in relation to Everything. environments, products, services. I mean, this gets into aircraft design, flight deck design, interface with some of the apps we use. Right. Um, and certainly more importantly, some of the decisions that we make when we're flying. So I'm working toward becoming a more perfect human, though. Are we all? 
Yeah. Yeah, we're all, we all are a work in progress, I can say for sure. This is next article about stress. Um, of course, it, it's your article. It is. And uh, the first thing that caught my attention was that you said that, in your opinion, stress is the ultimate human factor. Yeah. Why is that? Because everybody is susceptible to it. And because I, I, I enjoyed writing this article. I've actually had quite a bit of feedback about it. You know, people saying, oh, yeah, this really spoke to me. Because, first of all, stress is just like you see in the Janus figure there, the, the, the theatrical mass capicide, the opposite. Stress has two faces. It can motivate or it can debilitate. And the, the fact that your stress can be helpful to us. And in fact, if you didn't have stress, then you wouldn't sure. get very far. But on the other hand, stress can cripple. And it's really, really important to understand what it is, what it isn't. And um, the, the other thing that I really got into here is chronic versus acute stress. Acute stress, you know, something brief. Chronic stress, um, and I mean this with all my heart, peskier and more insidious can do permanent damage. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Mm -hmm. I don't like T-shirts, I put it back. <laughs> um, so anyway, it's, it's very, very important to figure out how to, man to, to identify, recognize, and manage it. In a former life, several lives removed, I, I was um, certainly involved in... Um, biomedical sciences and biomedical research. And one of the things I say flight training was stressful. Well, that too. <laughs> and one of the things I studied was the effect of stress on uh, individuals um, immune system and their overall health. So I spent quite a lot of time um, studying that and also became acquainted with a Hungarian um, physician and psychologist whose name was Hans Sewi. Um, he was, born in the late 20s, but did an amazing amount of work on stress in the 40s and 50s, and noticed that not just humans, but also test animals frequently had the same response to different stressors. And he was actually the first one in the scientific literature to use the word stress. Oh, wow. So it became adopted, of course, into, into the scientific literature. And he, he went a little bit further, which you have done in your article as well. He, he was very clear about saying that there are two types of stress. Mm -hmm. There is distress. Ah, yeah, I like that. Yeah, right. But he coined the term, which I, I think has not really been carried out or carried any farther, but I thought it was a good term for the good stress that we're referring to. He called it eustress, E-U stress. Oh. And that was the stress that yeah. keeps us safe. It, right. it, you know, allows us to do the friend or foe, react appropriately, and to keep a certain on guard. Mm -hmm. And I see in your last bullet point there, the four A's of stress management or avoid, alter, adapt, and accept. He also came up with a strategy that was called the general adaptation syndrome. And it was about how people should or could react to stress. And in some cases, uh, as you discussed further in this magazine, people get sort of focused and fixated to the exclusion of everything else. And sometimes that's good, but not always. And in other cases, people reacted uh, more appropriately to mitigate the stress. So this took me back to one of, the, one of those other lives when I was doing a different type of study, but it was 
very parallel to what we're talking about here. Yeah, on aviation, there's lots of stress there. Were, and I, I guess some of the stress that you have in aviation is what you he would call the use stress, the good stress, mm -hmm. because, you know, you're doing the ILS or, you know, you've got a student who's doing something, you're, you're really you're really ready to, to react to anything. And then um, chronic stress, and, and one of the reasons that I wrote this article is that I think all of us are very vulnerable right now with so many things that are going on, so many difficult things in the country and the world, in fact, um, mm -hmm. that it, chronic stress is, a, is something that we are all very, very vulnerable to right now. And the, the things, the ways to adapt to it, avoid, um, alter, adopt, and accept. I, I like alliteration, you know, I, you should have yep. noticed that. But I also like it because it's sort of easy to remember. And there's a, a little chart in here that shows some of the signs of stress and some of the things that you can do to, to um, identify each one and to um, use these four A's of stress management. There are lots of others, by the way, I found this in an article. Um, I go hunting through all sorts of things. And so I didn't make it up, but um, I was very happy to pass it on and share it. Yeah, it's, it's a good strategy. I mean, we're really talking about, in, in today's environment especially, we're talking about just mitigating stressors. Mm -hmm. And however each of us chooses to do that. But it's, the, the good stress part, I've often been working with students getting ready to take their check ride. And um, before the check ride starts, you know, I might say, well, how are you doing? And and uh, the response I'll get, well, I'm a little bit nervous. Well, you should be, right? I mean, yeah, the, the, right. a little bit of nervous in, in a check ride environment, it, it's a good thing, really, because it means you're going to be on guard and you're your senses are tuned into about what's ready to happen. If if you if you really weren't nervous about um, a check ride, then maybe you're not really tuned maybe in. Maybe not really tuned in. Although I will tell you, when I went to take my ATP check ride, I remember walking out to the airplane and thinking I would rather be walking the plank and stepping <laughs> off into shark infested waters than doing what I'm about to do. Um, I understand that. I, but I, I just it. yeah, I just had my six month recurrent check ride um, a couple of weeks ago yeah. and. We don't enjoy them, but if you're well prepared and you understand the system, then it's okay. Yeah. I mean, once once you start flying, it's 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 okay. It's, it's okay. And you pass the stress test too. It, indeed. So the next one is um, on staying grounded, and there's a couple of meanings in that. Yeah, this is the post-flight column, and I use it to close the issue. Normally, I would put it a little bit further in this presentation, but it just kind of seemed to bookend. We, we talked about human factors, and we started off talking about the stress test. And this article, the two, uh, it really does talk about handling stress from, um, uh, again, from the heart. I, the day that I wrote it, I had just seen one of those videos that was circulating. There, there were several of them, but... Just, I, I think it was a drone that was going over airport after airport after airport with parked airplanes and quiet runways. And these were big places. And uh, there was also a YouTube video of this pilot, and I watched every second of it. He goes off and he does the trifecta. He did low approaches at Kennedy, LaGuardia, and JFK, uh, and um, Newark. Newark the yeah. same day. And I just thought it was the most amazing thing. And the fact that he could do it and the controllers were all like, yeah, well, sure, why not? You know, so, but, but the, the, the point that I really wanted to leave with there um, is we, something that I had on an inspirational plaque used to hang in my bedroom when I was a kid 
we don't get to pick what happens to us, but we can always choose how we react to it and how we respond to it. And I think that it's, it, it gives you back in a time where you feel like there, everything is out of control. There is some measure of control in saying, I'm going to choose to be serene. I'm going to choose to find ways to use this time and to use the situation for something good and as well as dealing with all the other stuff that comes with it. Well, just as you said, we don't get to pick the weather, but we can certainly yeah, pick, the way exactly. we, pick the way we deal with it. I'm going to just kind of break from, because I don't like reading directly, but your your last few words in this column. I, They're I, magical. They are magical, <laughs> and, I want to, and I want to read them. Um, just as an instrument flying, fixation is not a helpful approach. I think we've all know the consequences of fixating on one thing at a time. It may not be possible to fix the source of the stress, but as proper instrument flying procedures teaches, we can choose to stop fixating. Only by looking around is it possible to get a solid fix on the attitude. I get it, attitude indicator, our own attitude. That puts you back into control and a bearing that allows you to safely navigate through the turbulence. Very well, very well said. Well, you know, when people ask me what my job title is, my favorite to tell them is the chief border collie thing. But I, the other day I had to introduce myself to a bunch of people um, who were in the office and I said, well, I'm the word wrangler. That's what I do. I enjoy it. Nope. Those are nice words. Your colleague, Sabrina Woods. Um, Dr. Sabrina Dr. Woods. Dr. Sabrina Woods, much. yes. Um, we've visited with her in the past. She's been a guest. She's written some articles, and she has a delightful article here about bias. Yes, yeah, Sabrina, uh, she, she rocks. Um, she has a PhD in human factors. I don't know how she did that with everything else that she does, but she uh, graduated, well, this summer, she got her degree from Embry-Riddle in Human Factors PhD. I think she has two master's degrees in the PhD. And the, the really sad thing was she had to defend her PhD on video. Um, and I think they did some kind of graduation that way oh. as well. So eventually mm -hmm. they'll get a real one. But uh, yeah, this was a great article. It was perfect for what we're talking about here. The ver she goes through the various kinds of bias that we're all very susceptible to, all vulnerable to. Expectation bias, I think, is probably one of the most common ones. Mm -hmm. And how, how does it manifest itself? You've been to this airport so many times, you know the approach you're going to get, yeah. but then somebody throws you a curve. Or you're expecting a certain taxi instruction, and you hear what you think you're going to get, but something else comes up. Well, that's also in confirmation bias when you hear, you, you see and notice information that concern, uh, confirms your preconceptions. The confirmation was um, one time I, I was cleared to land on runway zero one and my brain was set up to land on runway one zero and everything I saw and heard that I didn't filter, I filtered out anything that didn't confirm what I thought I was going to do. So it was, it was interesting. Well, and I think that depending on your environment, I'm in a crew environment in, a, in the 135 and certainly in 121 operations. It's, it's very interesting that how expectation bias can get created for failure to brief. Ah. So, for example, in, in my previous 121 environment, the captain taxied the airplane, but it was the first officer who copied the taxi clearance. So here you have a person who copies the clearance, but yet the person driving the airplane is not the one who actually 
got the clearance. It's the same with an HEC clearance. Sometimes there's a disconnect between mm -hmm. who actually gets it and who actually does it. And that can only be solved by briefings and just taking the moment to look at your chart, for example, a taxi diagram to map out how you're going to get someplace. You, you think it would be easy, but sometimes because of um, construction, notams, whatever, things are not as easy. And unless you brief them, and as I've often said, what we're trying to do in a briefing is to create a shared mental bottle mm -hmm. of how we're going to fly this airplane. Well, the other thing that uh, she gets into in this article that, uh, and we've got it in the first bullet here, there are mental shortcuts. You, you, you have to use mental shortcuts or ever, otherwise you're going to get caught up in, I guess the term is analysis paralysis. Mm -hmm. um, but bias, not, and I, I like the second point too, not all bias is bad, but it can trip us up. And the real key here is be aware that it can, know that you're vulnerable to it. Um, and, and there you go. I have to say on this automaticity thing, the yes, dear response, I never get that from you. You won't. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, on the plane continuation bias, um, what's another name for that? Get their itis. Get their itis. I think every, every pilot has had that feeling. Mm -hmm. We're mission driven. We want to complete it. We want to do it on time. And one thing that I think has led to it is the little direct button on our GPSs because it's so easy to hit the direct button, but maybe direct is not the best way. And sometimes um, a stop en route or a, um, a path around the weather, any of those things are options to us. And we just need to realize that that's a mitigation strategy for this type of bias. And the automation bias. Oh, boy. Uh, we could spend a long time, long on, time that. on that because just because we plug it into our right. autopilot or plug it into the, G the uh, GPS, we think it's going to be right. If we don't input it correctly, is going to give us whatever we did and it may not be working and oh, exactly the more complex automation gets the more we have to understand what to do when it's not doing what we think usually turn it off and start again well sure. I, I was watching a video today and they actually talked about i don't think they use the term automation bias but that was the same idea because it was sort of like yeah the autopilot was doing exactly what it was told to do but the pilots didn't seem to realize what it had been told to do. So there, there, there are lots of ways to get in trouble, but the, I, the first line of defense is, first of all, be aware and be mindful and watching out for them so that you don't get tripped. That's right. And once again, congratulations to Sabrina for her job well done. Uh, this, next, this next slide is about um, fatigue and asleep at the yoke. And all of us, I'm sure, have at one time or another been flying under the effects of being tired or being fatigued. I probably should have sent you this before you did that 2 a.m. to Reveille out of some airport the other day. Maybe. But we've all been there. Yeah. And the key, again, as we've been talking about, a lot of it is recognition and mitigation about first what can it do to you and then realize that fatigue is more than just oh, I didn't get a good night's sleep last night, it can be a compounding effect of mm -hmm. uh, dealing with stressors, mm -hmm. for example, proper diet. All of these things can be a factor in, in fatigue. But, of course, the, the, the key is is to be aware of it and to practice mitigation. And if you noticed already, this awareness is a theme of pretty much every piece that we've dealt with so far, um, that with human factors, it, it, it's sometimes human factors, it's sort of like the, the old saying, it's about a fish trying to perceive water. 
we, we live in and we're surrounded by things and we don't really notice what's going on, we have to make an effort to notice, to be aware. And because if we don't, we can, we can be tripped up by things. Well, and as the article says, Dr. Dr. Avers, mm -hmm. uh, who contributed to this, said the best way to combat fatigue is to improve your understanding of what causes it yep. and to know the risk associated with it and apply effective countermeasures. Yeah, and realize that you're not invulnerable. Um, there, there are so many times when, and I, I just think, you know, if you're in an airplane at night, especially if you're by yourself, and you're flying along and it's quiet and it's dark and you just hear the reassuring hum of the engine, which is one of the, the things that in this article that made me really sit up and take notice was this idea of micro naps. Never mm -hmm. really thought about that before. But um, it, you, you could go to sleep and have a very quick micro nap, this is what they call, and wake up and maybe not even realize you're, you've been asleep. However, Things happen fast in aviation. Well, haven't you been on an airplane in the back of the airplane and a passenger's head bobs up and down a little bit? Yeah, that's a micro <laughs> I think they're having a little micro napping. Yes, there you go. Um, and just to borrow a lesson from, you know, part 135 and part 121, there's a reason that those segments of the industry have duty times. Mm -hmm. Because there is the expectation of fatigue at the end of a duty day, which means we need an adequate rest period. And the same thing needs to apply about how we would fly into part 61 and 91. Absolutely. So um, this is this covers a broad range of what the FAA is doing about the humans behind human factors. So, yeah, this article, um, I remember it was pitched to me by other members of the staff with uh, it, it sort of started out with, well, Susan, this is going to be longer than you want it to be, but, and everybody knows that what, what I'm trying to, to pitch nowadays is shorter, tighter articles that pack a bunch because, uh, you know, we're, we're all busy. And if you have a really long piece, then it's going to be harder to read. This one is worth your time. And it's also, we made a point of dividing it into easy to manage segments. So for example, if, air, just aircraft certification. Uh, human factors. Exactly. But what we wanted to do with this piece, and I think our, our team, we, this was a joint effort by several, um, they did a great job. I, 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 what we wanted people to understand with doing this piece is, first of all, the FAA has long been very deeply involved in human factors research and application. This is not a new thing, but certainly some of the more recent events in aviation have prompted even more focus on it, and I think there may even be even looking to get more positions, more expertise. But we, we wanted to introduce the fact that we have an aircraft certification. Obviously, that's more about the human factors around design. In flight standards, where I work, it's operations and regulations. And then we go through UAS and uh, obviously accident investigation. And then our um, Civil Aerospace Medical Institute has a big piece of that, too. And, it's, and also, a, um also the maintenance side. Yes, absolutely. Of course, because almost everything we're saying about pilots can apply to the maintenance side of the organization mm -hmm. in terms of decision-making and procedures and, and fatigue, of course. And we, we interviewed the, uh, the people, so you, you actually sort of get to meet some of the people, and they're very passionate, very enthusiastic about what they do, um, as they should be, and it's, it's great because they, they're applying that passion to, to safety and to making everything so much better. But they, um, 
there, if you read each piece, you'll hear and learn about, as I certainly did, some of the research that's going on that will ultimately make its way into the world that we operate in. Mm -hmm. It was, um, when we think about human factors, of course, we just, I usually just think of the pilot side of things, but aircraft design is huge. Interface, mm -hmm. in, interface with a machine is more and more important in how we design the products that are hopefully going to make things easier for us and not more difficult. Well, and, and that's one of the things when you talk about the human machine interface, um, with some accidents, there's, there's been, I, I know that there's been some press out there about the fact that, well, gosh, you know, they've put in um, more, a lot of warning systems. And if you have one warning system that sounds like this, okay, that's one thing. But what if you have five or six of them? I have a friend who recently retired as a, an airline captain. And I remember he used to say, yeah, when I go to the sim, he said, it's one thing when, they, when I get one emergency. But he says, you get five or six things going, and it's really hard to keep track of which is which. And that is an area that's absolutely prime for human factors research. Well, and there's work on pilot resilience mm -hmm. that, it's a good a, term. that a lot of uh, researchers are working on, and that is how do we maintain aircraft control, flight path management, get things done in the proper order when things are piling up? So you and of course, the simulator is an ideal place to do that rather than in the aircraft. So the simulator can create scenarios that will actually check and test uh, what we call pilot resilience. Mm -hmm. So one of your colleagues and an individual who I've seen at many conferences, and oh, yeah. Kathy Abbott, she's been on a couple of panels that I've chaired at some aviation conferences before. She's a, a star in human factors. She is in aviation human factors. Um, when we were actually in the office, as opposed to virtual, um, Kathy, Kathy's office is not too far away from mine, and I used to pop in to see her to chat about this and that. She's been with the FA for a long time in a lot of capacities, and she's one of our star performers in um, leading a lot of this research. But it, it's always fun. I, I get to, even though I've known her for a long time, um, it's I, I learn really interesting things about my colleagues when we do the FA faces because what we do is we send around some questions and and we interview people and find out you know sort of the how how did you get involved in this what and I, I love how many people I think this was true with Sarah in the aviation communications that we featured last month mm -hmm. or last issue and Kathy this time. I didn't didn't think that I, you know aviation was just a thing. It wasn't really particularly interested, and one thing led to another, led to another, led to another. So she started off with some, doing some research to support ILS to MLS. If you remember what that was, I do remember. Yeah, I thought you might. Um, I'm old. Well, no, <laughs> but um, I used to have to learn about it and answer questions about it. Those have gone away. So she's uh, she's since gone on to fly all kinds of things, and I'm jealous of several of them. But she she ended up coming to the FA from NASA temporarily, quote unquote. But um, now she's with us permanently, and she's been. Uh, I, I think the the job that she's doing now, bringing people together who do human factors across the agency, is really important. So, well, whenever she's at a conference making a presentation, it's always well attended because she's she's certainly well respected. She knows her stuff. Our next one is um, more about accident investigation, and it's about yeah, I think the title is, but what do you actually do? 
Yeah, I think when people talk about a human factors expert um, and the fact that we have on accident investigations teams, we have human factors teams. And okay, you sort of kind of maybe know what that is, but we we decided since I had an easy um, an easy well I'll say an easy mark here, Sabrina. Um, Dr. Woods, uh, she is now working as a human factors analyst in the accident investigation division, and she's been on several accident investigations now. And so we just said, so Sabrina, what do, you, what, do, what do you do? How do you spend your days? How do you spend your time? And this was, uh, this was the result. The, it, it's always entertaining to talk to her and to hear her views on things, but she talks about the things that they do both on scene, launching with the GO team and helping with the various things that go on during the active investigation. But she, she really wanted to get across the point that so much of the work that happens is after of course. all the spotlight goes sure, away. There's a, there's a public, there's a oh, public yeah. site and a public impression, but then there's everything else. But then it disappears for a long time. And sometimes they, people never understand that something that might pop out years later as an improvement, uh, maybe sooner than that, but but it, it very much results from the work that was done on one accident or incident to show, hey, this was the chain, here's how it worked, here are things that we can do to mitigate or prevent it from happening again. And that's that's the goal. And of course, the NTSB is in charge, you know, by mm -hmm. law of these investigations. But the FAA is automatically a party always to a these, party. always yes. a party to these yes. investigations. So they're they're working hand in hand with the with the uh, NTSB yes. folks. Um, decisions, decisions. This was a nice nice article by your um, Our by, editor, right? by your colleague Tom. Yep. Uh, Angle of attack article, and. This is really all about humans because we're talking about human decisions, of course. Once again, I know. Um, what I've often, as I was reading this, I thought, how many times haven't we heard in a discussion the engine decided to quit? Well, the engine didn't decide to quit. I mean, it can't decide; it just quit, right? Yeah. yeah. But humans, <laughs> humans can decide what they're going to do when right. their engine stops working. Well, and humans, I always make this point too. I think we made it in our emergency issue when we talked about engine failure. The fact that um, if you decide to do more paying attention and maintenance beforehand, you can prevent your engine from ever making the decision <laughs> supposedly to quit on you. But but yeah, any decisions are a big thing, and what you do, what you do about what happens, what occurs to you, uh, makes all the difference. You can you can affect a good outcome or a not so good outcome. And I, I'm always struck by things like this uh, idea, 80% of all aviation accidents are related to human factors. And this part is that, that fault tolerant human quest we have again. Um, so many stem from bad decisions. Well, in, um, when I was uh, at the airline, I was a member of the, um, Event review committee. The event review, yeah. yeah, thank you. The event re review committee, the ERC, for the company's ASAP program, and in the airline world, ASAP is Aviation Safety Action Program, and its its corollary in the general aviation world is NASA the, the NASA forms. Yeah. So, in exchange for disclosing voluntary information, you had some certificate protection as long as it wasn't willful negligent, drug or alcohol related. Mm -hmm. When we called through many of our reports. 
it's an interesting number, 80% of them contain the words time or distraction, oh, which right. means those are all preventable. Mm -hmm. If you learn to recognize the time pressures that we feel, and Tom does a really nice job of outlining the scenario where mm -hmm. we're gonna make a trip, but oh, we didn't sleep well that night, and oh, we got the sniffles, but okay, we're gonna keep going anyhow because we wanna go fishing. And one thing leads to another, and if you take one thing by itself, it's probably manageable, but as you, as you begin to stack these series of decisions on, you might find yourself well, it's overloaded. This is your classic leading up to the straw that broke the camel's back, as the cliche goes. But he, he does um, I, I, he does hook you in with a little bit of a story at the beginning. Mm -hmm. and it's very relatable. We've all kind of... Absolutely. Although the fishing trip part, not for me. Not I for you. Done that, no. But, um, but it, it does get into the issues of complacency and, you know, sort of some expectation bias and things like that that what could possibly go wrong as a short mm -hmm. flight, things like that. When we used to drill down and, and do sort of root cause analysis of any particular event, there was lots of focus on, well, how can we prevent this from happening? And I tried to simplify things in some of this and say, to me, there's only two reasons that something happens in terms of sort of non-compliance, and that is it's either attitude or it's skills. Mm -hmm. if, if you can't land in a crosswind and keep the nose going straight down the runway, that's a skill problem. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody in their right mind says, gee, I'm having a bad week, I think I'll land on the right side of the runway. <laughs> <laughs> so training departments and right. training providers can do skills. Right. The attitude part about right. what led you to the decision not to go around from an unstabilized approach is a whole other story. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's something that you have to fix yourself. That's correct. So our vertically speaking column this time is... Um, Avoiding information overload, and it was an interesting article about how information is displayed in, in helicopter displays for avoidance. Yeah, I, it, this, this this the story and the account here was specific to rotorcraft, but I think it it goes along with what we were talking about with some of the displays um, and the way that information is displayed on other aircraft too, or that warnings are displayed. But I, I thought this was quite fascinating. They put a bunch of pilots in the sim, and they showed them different displays. And you notice here, they were guided by display showing a green line that warned them about wires that they were supposed to fly over. But look at that. More than half of the pilots flew under instead of over. But then when they put this red curtain there instead, pilots didn't work what they were supposed to do. And it's... The color coding and the, the illustration there helped pilots do a better job in interpreting the hazard and doing the right thing about it. And it's how we talked about human factors in yeah. terms of aircraft design, for sure. Absolutely. So it was, it was quite fascinating. And the whole thing about the research is to figure out ways that some of this information can be fed back into two places. One is training, but the other is certainly with manufacturing and design. Sure. How can we design things that are easier for uh, somebody who's flying to, to see and to work with? So this is, uh, I remember this as a title of a TV show years ago, Tool Time. It was. Yes. I enjoyed that show. But this is all about safety culture. It is. As, as it relates to um, maintenance work. So... And there's a survey, I think, that's going to be coming out soon. Yeah. Uh, so culture assessment, and there, there's another article that we'll talk about in a second that, that kind of gets into some of the safety culture issues. But 
these are job resources and demands form the foundation of culture, as it says here, and they influence what happens. And it influences things like how willing people are to take risks or to overlook something that somebody else is doing. And safety culture is, it's always been sort of a tough thing to measure. And sometimes if somebody outside is coming to do it, then that could lead to proprietary issues. So the, the process, if you see in the first bullet there, a standalone process for control and ownership is maybe one way to help them measure it in a way that they're comfortable with. So they've, put a, they've developed a survey, which is in beta testing right now, 25 to 30 minutes, 180 questions. And it's anonymous, but the whole idea is to help companies measure where it is that they might have problems and issues that they need to address. And directly related to that is the next article about addressing the challenge of failure to follow procedures. This is directly, this is related to maintenance. Yep. But again, everything that we're talking about in terms of maintenance can also be applied to pilots. Um, a lot of it is about attitude, skills, and why we don't follow procedures or checklists. Yeah, you know, we know that we're supposed to do something. And it, there, there, there's so many reasons that humans can do it. Some of it is, well, I kind of, I did it before. It's not a big deal. I've seen other people do I've it seen that other way. People do sure. it. But, the, but the one of the things that is really, really struck me in here, the group norms of deviating from procedures. It, whether or not we like it, humans are herd animals. We're social animals. I think that's one of the reasons that some of the isolation and social distancing has been really hard for people. Indeed, um, because we we are not made to do that, although we kind of have to, to stay safe from each other nowadays. But um, yeah, the group norms of deviating, and it it takes a lot of courage if everybody else in your, in your shop or your place of work is doing something because, hey, well, you know, it's not a big deal. It takes too long to do it the other way. Um, it would take a lot of courage to buck that. And so this is the... Um, this is a, there are various ways to try to address and redress that failure to follow procedures. And there's some training, free training that's available and um, both for individuals and for organizations. And there's how you find it. it it's great. It's just a good reminder of, in, in, in all of aviation is about following procedures. Mm -hmm. So More than maybe any other thing. Um, I was caught on this one sentence here about how drones don't get bored and how often haven't we said there I was droning along at 35,000 right, feet. Right, right, so exactly. the drones don't get bored, but sometimes we do. And yeah. that's when complacency and, you know, lapse of procedures can happen. Well, the other thing is um, I, I, I have not watched much of it, but I know the show that the Dirty Jobs yep. show that um, kind of opens up this micro. Yeah. Yep. And the fact is there, there are dirty jobs that are just sort of unpleasant, but there's some, as it points out here, that are just dangerous. And drones, to the extent that a drone can do it safely and efficiently, and I know, you know there's something like they've sent drones into nuclear facilities where humans sure. would get radiated. But I, I had some, um, a little bit of experience with it, or not personal experience, but Let's just say I came to appreciate drones' ability to do some things because back in um, June, one of the biggest wildfires in Arizona's history, called the Bush Fire, that you probably saw on the news, um, it was about it was never any closer than about 20 miles from my place, and it was moving in the opposite direction. However, 
when I'm sitting out on the patio at night, looking out and seeing these mountains in front of me on fire, um, that got my attention. And it was hard to think that, yeah, that's, you know, that's a long way away. But um, one of the things that they did that there, there were a lot of aircraft working the accident and there were TFRs, temporary flight restrictions mm -hmm. all over the place. And I, I could see tankers and cranes and all the other sky cranes and all the other um, aircraft going past. But, but they also did use drones for some of the mapping and to try to figure out where sure. the, the spread was going and things that either they didn't have enough aircraft to spare or this was a quick way that they could go and do a very dirty and potentially dangerous job. So, Well, as we said in many issues before, this is an important part of the aviation industry. Absolutely. And there's growing opportunities and um, things that need to be managed as well. And then the last piece was um, that uh, drone delivery of uh, medications, groceries, mm -hmm. food supplies. There are all sorts of things that, um, that, that drones can do to help keep us all safe. Indeed. Moving on to the um, aeromedical advisory. You know, Dr. Michael Berry has um, kind of discussed all the things that are going on in relation to how do we reintegrate ourselves back into the plane, into the environment, into our own proficiency. Um, and he, his, his big message is we have to take our time when we're getting back in the system. Yes. He certainly talks about some of the SFARs that are there to extend our legality, but then what about our proficiency? And time management and accepting the fact that it may be, it been 90 days, maybe six months before we've been in an aircraft, that that demands, taking our time to do that, looking at our plane more, making sure that it still has its required inspections, um, the health risk of flying with other passengers, all of this needs to be mitigated. So he did a nice job of sort of summarizing that if we look at all of this as another risk to be managed and apply some time factors to it, we can succeed. Yes, and um, yeah, that, that we, we need to, to definitely pay attention to every single one of those things. But But a lot of it is, um, is also making sure we I know people sometimes make fun of the I'm safe checklist, but you really do have to be conscious of your own health and well-being these days and make sure that you are indeed safe. And a topic that the next contributor, which is Leo Patrick, uh, FAA medical officer, wrote about is about um, medical testing. You, you can't turn on the news today without some discussion about testing. Um, but his summary of some of the variables makes it in a very plain language, easy to understand um, description of false negatives, false positives, antibodies, antigens, and the fact that this is not that easy because of the lack of specificity in some cases of the virus and the test. Yeah, I, I learned a lot from this because even though I did know that medical testing was a complex subject, this one really did a great job in explaining in simple terms, here's what a test is looking for, and here's what, uh, here, here are some of the, the potential pitfalls, and here's why it's so hard to really get it right, particularly when you're going after something that you've not seen before. Well, in the volume that we're dealing with, any any small error will be amplified by hundreds of thousands, if not millions, when you look at the sample size of the US. 
So it was a, it was a great article. It, it sort of summarized things for me in a way that it made a lot of sense. Kind of took you back, didn't it? A little bit, <laughs> yeah. Um, again, Tom Hoffman, a little bit of a poet here, Shakespearean influence, yes. to be or not to be. What's this about? Well, ADSB, the mandate has um, is in gone. place. <laughs> well, it hasn't gone. It's still uh, the mandate is in place, mm -hmm. and we hope that a lot of people have equipped with ADSB out. Um, some may have chosen not to, and I guess this article is a little bit of a think about that again because sure. this is a ADSB out does a lot of great things. And oh, by the way. If you can get some level of ADSB in, which I've had for some years, and it's it it really quickly becomes a I don't want to go without this. I really want to be able to see what's around. I want to have a lot more visibility on things than I otherwise would have. So um, yeah, this is this is some of the reasons and rationale for equipping. So if somebody hasn't equipped, um, we hope that it might be somewhat persuasive, or that somebody who has a friend who has an equipment might take the article and say, hey, look at this. Well, and even if you're not a big fan of ADSB in, if you don't want the expense or you don't have the utility for it, ADSB out also helps the other person see you. Absolutely. So especially in areas, for example, like in Alaska, where mm -hmm. there's, there's so much flying and um, emphasis on terrain avoidance and weather and everything. So uh, I use it all the time. Uh, I use it on one of the popular iPad apps. Um, I love it. It helps it in, does. in combination with other resources. Yeah, put it all together. Sure, absolutely. So the three individuals are the national um, GA award winners, and we've certainly seen one before, and that's your friend and colleague, Catherine. Catherine Cavagnaro um, is the... Um, is the flight instructor of the year, and she's a columnist in several of the uh, publications. I, I want to say before we introduce the others, um, two things. One is that they've been introduced in the GAA online, and they've provided their their top tips kind of information. And I I really um, am regretful for all of us that we're missing AirVenture this year but also especially regretful for these folks because this is normally their opportunity to come to Oshkosh and to really see, be seen, uh, they get recognized, their awards are presented there. And my understanding is that plans are underway to reschedule that. Well, they should be because it's, it's certainly a significant um, award and a significant honor. And she is National Flight Instructor of the Year has made some excellent contributions as has the Aviation Technician of the Year, who's Dennis Walter. Uh, when I read his background, it doesn't look like there's anything he hasn't done. I know. In, in relation to aviation. I feel like such a slacker. Aviation maintenance and education. Um, he has a well-rounded uh, well um, experience in our industry and certainly deserving of, of the award, as has the... Um, FAA safety team rep of the year, who's um, Gary Brossett, uh, Midland, Georgia. He's been active since 2005. Long time. And all of the individuals who participate in the FAA um, safety team do good work, both at a local as well as at a, a national level. 
Well, congratulations to all of these folks and um, look for them around in other places and at other times when they will truly be able to be recognized. So, For sure. So um, the column on ATIS is sort of Aviation News Roundup. It's little snippets and bits and pieces of things. You've already addressed the, the, the first one by talking about the overhaul of the FAA uh, .gov site. I'm really excited about that because it's overdue and I've been yelling, waving my arms for a long time about the need for an app, you know, something that I can have on my phone and iPad. Um, another thing, uh, you can read all the little articles there, but avoiding the legal charters, that's become a really big thing at the FAA now because um, there, there are a lot of, there are operators out there who are trying to sell themselves as something they're not, and they are, if they don't have the qualifications to do what they're doing, it's unsafe for everybody. So hopefully people will take a look at that. Well, I mean, that, that article and that little news snippet is certainly about operators, but also about um, passengers. Yeah. Um, it's about educating passengers to know what to look for and to know what to ask for. And I think it also, just in a general sense, all of us need to be aware that it would be easy to do a friend a favor and say, oh, yeah, I'll take you somewhere and make sure that that doesn't cross the line between that's a charter versus I'm just taking somebody somewhere. Exactly. So there's things to be careful of that. We, uh, I'm going to go to the last bullet point, but then we'll get the other ones. We've often talked about visibility sensor tests for weather cameras. This is, seems to be increasing. I, I know that there was some placement of these in Alaska and more recently in Colorado and now other places yeah, where it just cameras. augments. Yeah. It augments the entire weather information system. Lots of opportunities to know exactly what's going on. For sure. And scenario-based helicopter training. Um, Scenario-based training is it's been around for a long time. It's popular, and it's so well done that we can test so many things in so many scenarios to see how we react. And of course, the goal is that we hope that once we're in the real aircraft, we'll react as though we've been trained. But it's almost unlimited possibilities about the scenarios that we can create that are tools for learning. And then the last part was a bit of uh, just some changes coming to flight yeah, service in terms, of some of the, in terms of some of their coverage areas. I know you often reach out to, um, well, you we, get feedback, and you we, do get feedback. I see, I see people write in about some of the, the articles that have appeared in past issues. We do. We normally get feedback uh, through the mailbox, which is checked regularly, uh, safety briefing at fa.gov. And we also engage pretty heavily on social media. That's our Twitter handle. Mm -hmm. And uh, we contribute very substantially to the FA's Facebook page as well. So lots of ways to get feedback, and we do pay attention, and we do answer. And unless somebody says, please don't, we often publish the, the questions and answers in case somebody else might have a... Well, and, and certainly the, the comments and feedback are useful um, because people are often bringing their own experiences mm -hmm. into their feedback which is a learning experience as well. So it's um, it's good that somebody is paying attention. Well, we always like to hear from people, and we sure. always write back. Very good. And our old standard about where, where to find us. Where yeah. do we find us? Um, as you may remember, we dropped some of the uh, less used uh, mobile formats. 
but we have free download and PDF, mobile friendly. We The FA has a blog now, Medium, and most of our feature articles now end up uh, being circulated on Medium. So I know that we're we're getting a lot of people who read them that way rather than through the um, the full publication or the print publication. But there are lots of ways to get it if you really want the print copy, um, which I like to have for records. Um, you can have that, and I always download it in PDF as well. So lots of options. You can. It's kind of like that that hamburger ad. Have it your way. You can have it a lot of different ways. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good point. I'm still. I still like the magazine in the paper form. Yeah, myself. So, paper's good. Um, especially for what we do here, because it allows me to mark things up mark a little bit easier. Mark things up. I noticed that. Yeah. So, um, the next um, viewing of FAA Safety Briefing Live will be our September October broadcast with a date to be determined. And as I'm looking at that, I have this strange feeling it might be related to data. Bingo. Okay. This one was a little less mysterious, so enough said about that one. Okay. <laughs> we're gonna have a, a we're gonna have a data issue. It's it's <laughs> a good issue. We're wrapping it up now, so um, looking forward to presenting it. How far out in advance do you plan these? A long time. Long time. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Uh, to wrap things up here, we want everybody to take advantage of the Wings and AMT credit. Uh, there is a link to the um, print copy of the magazine. And I really do enjoy going back and looking at some of the, the um, past issues. So we've archived the past programs and the, and the links to the podcast. And the uh, new link that uh, has been put up is um, the past articles and the past well, courses. Well, past courses and, and uh, special thanks to the wizard behind all of this, John Typen, who is the mastermind behind Safety Briefing Live, making us... Uh, appear here and putting all these things up. So kudos and thanks to him. And he's he's done a really great job making these easy to access for Wings Credit. Susan, it's been good to work with you again. We'll look forward to the next time. Yeah, next summer when I come to Wisconsin, why don't we have Oshkosh? <laughs> we could try that. Let's do. Stay safe, everybody. Be well. Take care.